This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. It's time for the New Yorker. Since 1925, it's been the world's source for the finest in art and fiction, sophisticated reviews, humor, commentary, and news. Stay tuned for this week's Culture Blast from the one and only New Yorker, right now on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is the New Yorker, and I'm your reader, Dale, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I'll be reading from The New Yorker, dated February 5th, 2024. And now, I'll begin with the talk of the town. Comment. Veep stakes. We need a president who will restore law and order, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina bellowed from a stage in Concord, New Hampshire, ahead of that state's primary last week. We need Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, barring a major plot twist, will soon need a running mate. Scott, the only black Republican in the Senate, and until recently a candidate for the Republican nomination himself, appears to be well aware of that prospect. He's not the only one. An unseemly crowd of would-be veeps has been campaigning in Trump's wake, generating a phantasmagoria of MAGA abasement, rich in ambition, short on shame. There was a brief time when it seemed possible that prominent Republicans would recoil from the idea of being Trump's sidekick. The last person to hold the job, Mike Pence, was threatened with lynching after he refused to go along with his boss's plan for a coup. But the proliferating lists of serious aspirants include governors, senators, and members of the House, in addition to various MAGA hangers-on. Donald Trump Jr. told Newsmax that Tucker Carlson would certainly be a contender. Elise Stefanik, the chair of the House Republican Conference, would be honored, she said, to serve in a future Trump administration in any capacity, which is just a fancy paraphrase of the declaration by Carrie Lake, an Arizona Senate candidate, that she would crawl over broken glass for the former president. By the AP's count, 30 current senators have endorsed Trump. The very fact that there is a competition confirms how Trumpist the GOP has become. In other words, while the Veep stakes is a regular feature of the American presidential process, this round has some decidedly irregular features. For one thing, it is coming quite early. Super Tuesday is still a month away. In late January, Trump stoked the Veep talk by informing Fox News' Brett Baer that there was someone that I think I like and that there was a 25% chance he'd choose that person. He seems to relish both the spectacle and the indirect acknowledgement that he has the nomination tied up. For related reasons, the unwillingness of Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, to drop out of the race after coming in second in New Hampshire seems to enrage him. Last week, he announced on Truth Social that anyone who gave birdbrain Haley money would be permanently barred from the MAGA camp. And Beepstakes is one of the games they play at that camp. There is another even stranger aspect of this campaign. Trump is under criminal indictment in four jurisdictions. Separately, the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments on February 8th about his eligibility to be on the ballot. 
These cases raise profound questions about the role of the potential vice president. Will Trump's VP pick be the presumptive alternative nominee? If convicted but still elected, could Trump call a vice president Marjorie Taylor Greene from prison to order an airstrike on a foreign country? The paradox is that while the level of Republican unity seems at this stage unusually high, so is the chance that the ticket will fall apart. Adding to the uncertainty for both parties, Trump is 77 and Joe Biden is 81, when Haley was asked last week why she, too, despite it all, still planned to endorse Trump if he gets the nomination, she said, because I don't ever want to see a President Kamala Harris. Haley also said, days before the primary, I don't want to be anybody's vice president. That is off the table. There is no doubt a mix of pragmatism and principle in her position. She's unlikely to be chosen anyway. In New Hampshire, when Trump said that Scott must really hate Haley, Scott said, I just love you. Similarly, Ron DeSantis would not be a practical running mate because both he and Trump are Florida residents. Owing to a quirk of the Constitution, Florida's electors could not vote for both of them. DeSantis, like Haley, might have his eye on 2028 instead. Representative Brian Donalds also has a Florida problem, but when asked if he would take the spot, he said, I mean, who wouldn't? For the remaining contenders, Politico observed that the challenge is demonstrating their fealty to Trump without overdoing it. It's not clear where Trump places the overdoing it bar. Pence questioned the outcome of the 2020 election, and that wasn't good enough. Is it necessary to suggest, as Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, another name mooted by Don Jr., did in New Hampshire, that the truth about January 6th has been hidden from the American people? Vance has also referred to Trump's legal issues as sham indictments to protect a failed president. The Veep stakes may devolve into a scramble to impugn both the legal and the electoral systems. Stefanik, making her bid, called people criminally charged for their actions on January 6th hostages. She is regarded as a top prospect. At a joint appearance in New Hampshire, Trump praised her both for having attacked Harvard in a recent congressional hearing and for having gone to Harvard herself. The election, judging from polls, will be close, and it's possible that a VP pick could make a difference with, say, suburban women or black men. And it's easy to get caught up in questions of style. What plays best, the relative subtlety of Arkansas's Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who has responded to her inclusion on many lists by saying, I absolutely love the job I have. The posturing coyness of Representative Nancy Mace telling Charlemagne the God that she finds the idea intriguing, or the raw enthusiasm of Governor Kristi Noem of South Dakota, who said that she'd be Trump's veep in a heartbeat. North Dakota's governor, Doug Burgum, is in the mix, too. Where the choice almost certainly won't make a difference is in restraining Trump's worse impulses. Even the more absurd moments in Trump's beep stakes are imbued with disquieting undertones. During his New Hampshire victory speech, for example, Trump asked Vivek Ramaswamy, the conspiracy-prattling businessman and former presidential candidate, to step forward in a tone that suggested he saw him less as a campaign surrogate than as a wind-up toy. One minute or less, go do it, Vivek. 
Ramaswamy obliged with some rapid-fire words about Ukrainian kleptocrats and Haley putting America last, and added of her supporters, the only thing they're rooting for is an ugly thing that we don't want to see happen. Which ugly thing? It wasn't clear. Trump, though, looked pleased. Minutes later, he told Scott, who was also on stage, to come up and take his shot. And that article was written by Amy Davidson Sorkin. Turning now to the control of nature. Burn notice. What's really fueling the wildfire crisis? And this was written by Elizabeth Colbert. The provincial government of Alberta defines a wildfire of note as a blaze that could pose a threat to public safety, communities, or critical infrastructure. Last year, Alberta's first wildfire of note broke out unusually early on April 30th near the tiny town of Entwistle, about 65 miles west of Edmonton. A second wildfire of note was recorded that same day in the town of Evansburg. Four days later, an astonishing 72 wildfires were burning, and three days after that, the number had grown to 109. Some 30,000 people had to be evacuated, and Alberta's premier declared a state of emergency. It's been an unusual year, Christy Tucker, an official from the province's Wildfire Information Unit, observed at the end of the week. The unusual soon became the unheard of. Owing to a combination of low winter snowfall and abnormally high spring temperatures, many parts of Canada, including the maritime provinces, were just a cigarette butt away from incineration. On May 28th, with flames bearing down on Halifax, the capital of Nova Scotia, some 18,000 people were told to evacuate. Basically, all hell is breaking loose, a fire chief in Halifax, Rob Hebb, said. Meanwhile, the largest fire ever recorded in Nova Scotia, the Barrington Lake Fire, was burning toward the city's southwest. The fires kept hopscotching across the country. Before the Barrington Lake Fire had been contained, a new monster, the Donnie Creek Fire, emerged in British Columbia. On June 18th, after scorching more than 2,000 square miles, Donnie Creek became British Columbia's largest recorded blaze. Saskatchewan saw dozens of wildfires, Quebec hundreds. Evacuation orders went out to the entire city of Yellowknife, the capital of the Northwest Territories. Many of the blazes created their own weather in the form of thunderstorms spawned by rapidly rising hot air. The smoke from the fires drifted across much of the United States, prompting health alerts from Minneapolis to Washington, D.C., by late June, Canada had broken its previous annual record for acreage burned, set in 1995, and by mid-October, nearly 46 million acres, an area larger than Denmark, had been charred. This was almost triple the previous record and nine times the annual average. This summer across Canada has been absolutely astounding. Lori Daniels, a professor in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at the University of British Columbia, told the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, The word unprecedented doesn't do justice to the severity of the wildfires, Jan Bollinger, a research scientist at Natural Resources Canada, said. As bad as Canada's 2023 wildfire season was, Europe, too, saw its largest wildfire on record, a blaze that consumed more than 300 square miles in northeastern Greece, 
the conflagrations are predicted to keep growing. A paper that appeared last summer in the journal Fire Ecology warned that increasing warming and drying trends will make wildfires more frequent and severe, and a recent report from the Wildland Fire Mitigation and Management Commission, a body established by Congress, predicted a future defined by wildfires that are increasingly extreme, vast in scale, and devastating. Another recent report from the Federation of American Scientists observed that the world is warming so fast that the models firefighters rely on to predict how blazes will behave have become obsolete. Climate change is drying fuels and making forests more flammable, the report said. As a result, no matter how much money we spend on wildfire suppression, we will not be able to stop increasingly extreme wildfires. As the wildfires have multiplied, so too have books on the subject. Recent volumes range from the intimate Manulas Martin's The Last Fire Season, A Personal and Pyronatural History, to the sweeping Edward Struzik's Dark Days at Noon, The Future of Fire, and the quick turnaround, The Summer Canada Burned, The Wildfire Season That Shocked the World, compiled by Monica Zawowski. Fire, it might be said, is a hot topic. M.R. O'Connor's Ignition, Lighting Fires in a Burning World, published by Bold Type, began in the author's telling with a gimmick. Several years ago, O'Connor, a Brooklyn-based journalist, visited Florida's Apalachicola National Forest with a local botanist. The two came upon a rare wildflower, Gentiana Catesbay, which, the botanist explained, thrives on recently torched ground. Many plants, O'Connor learned, have evolved to tolerate fire. These are known as pyrophytes, and some have come to depend on it to stimulate reproduction. Intrigued, she enrolled in Introduction to Fire Effects, an online course offered by the University of Idaho. One thing leads to another, and pretty soon O'Connor finds herself traveling to central Nebraska to light it on fire. As part of a crew producing a prescribed burn, she's handed a drip torch, basically a fuel canister attached to a long nozzle. Although she hasn't had much training, she's soon igniting the prairie. She describes the experience as thrilling. A professional fire setter tells her, you have the firebug. In the course of starting more blazes in upstate New York and California, O'Connor comes to see the wildfire problem less in terms of surfeit and more in terms of scarcity. Prior to human settlement, lightning-induced fires were, it seems, a regular occurrence in North America. These blazes acted as a kind of ecological reset from the ashes of the incinerated forest or grassland, pyrophytes blossomed. Later, Native Americans routinely burned the landscape to foster the growth of useful plants to clear space for farming and to improve the conditions for hunting. In the 1630s, Thomas Morton, an English colonist who settled in Massachusetts, wrote that this practice produced a park-like landscape that was very beautiful and commodious. Two hundred years later, the artist George Catlin described the sight of Native Americans burning the prairie as indescribably beautiful. At night, Catlin wrote, the flames could be seen from many miles away, creeping over the sides and tops of the bluffs, appearing to be sparkling and brilliant chains of liquid fire. In addition to maintaining park-like conditions, 
These managed blazes prevented fuel from building up and so staved off larger, potentially unmanageable conflagrations. Once the U.S. government had pushed Native Americans onto reservations and seized their land, controlled burning ceased across much of the country. Then the U.S. Forest Service moved to eliminate wildfires entirely. Gifford Pinchot, who became the agency's first director in 1905, considered flames to be the enemy of the trees. Of all the foes that attack the woodlands of North America, no other is so terrible as fire, he wrote. Toward the end of the summer of 1910, an unusually dry one in the American Northwest, gale-force winds whipped up hundreds of blazes in Idaho and western Montana. These coalesced to form one of the largest forest fires in U.S. history, an inferno that killed 87 people, destroyed several whole towns, and consumed more than 3 million acres. Following what became known as the Big Blow-Up, the Forest Service doubled down on fire control. William Greeley, who became the head of the agency in 1920, wrote that the Great Fire had burned into him the conviction that fire prevention is the number one job of American foresters. In 1933, the Roosevelt administration created the Civilian Conservation Corps, one of the earliest New Deal programs. The CCC put millions of mostly single men to work on projects that included building fire lookouts, digging fire breaks, and fighting forest fires. In 1935, the leader of the Forest Service, Ferdinand Silcox, announced the 10 a.m. policy. All fires on Forest Service lands were expected to be extinguished by the morning after the day they were reported. Other federal agencies following the Forest Service's lead soon adopted similar policies. Though many blazes pushed past the 10 a.m. deadline, the policy remained in effect until the late 1970s. Gradually, it became clear that fire suppression was wrecking many of the forests it was intended to save. Among the trees whose seeds require fire to germinate are giant sequoias. These days, O'Connor writes, the Forest Service likes to boast that it oversees the country's biggest prescribed fire program, which burns almost 1.5 million acres a year. But this isn't nearly enough to make up for what's become known as the fire deficit. According to some estimates, this deficit amounts to more than 3 million acres just in the mountains of New Mexico and Arizona, and according to others, it amounts to more than 10 million acres across Washington and Oregon. A wildlife biologist whom O'Connor meets in central Nebraska tells her that the controlled burns he's organized in the past decade have charred about 30,000 acres. But to preserve the prairie that remains, he estimates, nearly twice that area should be combusted every year. I have a dream of road-to-road fires one day, he tells her. Our goal here is to dream big. At one point in her travels, O'Connor visits Yosemite National Park with Stephen J. Pine, a professor emeritus at Arizona State University. Pine might be described as the gibbon of fire history. He has written some 30 books on the subject, including a nine-volume work, To the Last Smoke, on the legacy of fire in different regions of the U.S. As O'Connor was interviewing Pine for her book, Pine was researching a book of his own, Pyrocene Park, A Journey into the Fire History of Yosemite National Park, published by University of Arizona. 
Geologically speaking, we live in the Holocene, the epoch that began about 12,000 years ago at the close of the last ice age. But many geologists argue that the Holocene, too, has come to an end, and that we have entered a new epoch widely referred to as the Anthropocene. Pine believes that the new epoch would be better labeled the Pyrocene, a term of his own invention. The Pyrocene began when a fire-wielding creature met a fire-receptive period in the Earth's history, and their interaction made anthropogenic fire an informing presence, he writes in a previous book, The Pyrocene, How We Created an Age of Fire and What Happens Next. Pine's argument for the Pyrocene begins with fire itself, which he divides into three sorts. First fire is the kind that requires no human intervention. This sort is as old as the hills or even older. The earliest evidence of fire on Earth comes from fossilized charcoal dating to the Silurian period when plants were just starting to creep onto dry land. Second fire, in Pine's scheme, is the kind that humans set, or at least control. It's not clear when exactly hominins learned how to manipulate fire, but the discovery may go back as far as 1.5 million years. Controlling fire was such a significant breakthrough that Pine argues it altered the course of evolution. Cooking enabled our ancestors to devote less space to digestion and more to cognition, developments that in turn meant humans could no longer live without flames. First fire and second fire both rely on the same fuel source, living or at least recently live plants. For most of human history, this was the constraint on combustion. Then people figured out how to access ancient biomass in the form of coal, oil, and natural gas. The combustion of fossil fuels produced third fire, which altered the atmosphere and in the process the climate. Fire created the conditions for more fire, Pine writes. Like O'Connor, Pine proposes fighting more fire with fire. He advocates a return to the sort of cultural burning once practiced by indigenous peoples, not just in North America, but in almost all parts of the world where the landscape is flammable. If fire there will be, must be, then replace fires of chance with fires of choice, Pine urges. He praises the Australians who are trying to revive cultural burning practices on aboriginal lands. The suppression of fire practices was part of colonizing the land. Restoring fire is seen as a means to recover some of those losses, he writes. Toward the end of Ignition, O'Connor visits the Yurok Reservation in Northern California to participate in a prescribed burn. The exercise is a collaboration between tribal members and an assortment of outsiders eager to be part of what O'Connor calls the Good Fire Revolution. With all these megafires, they finally realize, oh, maybe we should ask these indigenous peoples how to take care of the forest, Margot Robbins, a Yurik basket maker and activist, tells her. We took care of it for 10,000 years. As it happens, one of the directors of the operation, Kelly Martin, is a wildland firefighter who spent a decade working in Yosemite. Humans created these conditions, and humans can step in to remediate it, Martin says. We have no time to waste. If the summer of 2023 was Canada's worst wildfire season on record, its costliest remains 2016's when flames swept through Fort McMurray, a city in northern Alberta. 
The Fort McMurray fire forced roughly 90,000 people to evacuate, destroyed more than 2,000 homes, and caused billions of dollars worth of damage. In a chronicle of the event, Fireweather, a true story from a hotter world, published by Knopf, John Valiant proposes yet another name for our new epoch, the Petrocene. The Petrocene, he argues, began a century and a half ago with the discovery of oil, which put immense amounts of energy at the disposal of ordinary people. Behind the wheel of a Chevy Silverado, a 100-pound woman can generate more than 600 horsepower Valiant, a Vancouver-based rider observes. Prior to the Petrocene age, only a king or a pharaoh could have summoned such power, and its equivalent would have required hundreds of enslaved people and draft animals. The Fort McMurray fire is, in Valiant's telling, a cruelly appropriate Petrocene disaster. The city, nicknamed Fort McMoney, owes its existence to the Alberta tar sands, a vast deposit of low-quality oil that has to be either dug or steamed out of the ground. Pretty much everyone who lived in Fort McMurray at the time of the fire worked, either directly or indirectly, on getting this oil to refineries so that it could be pumped into gas tanks and combusted. The resulting carbon dioxide, together with the CO2 from burning billions of tons of coal and tens of billions of barrels of conventional oil, contributed to the hot, dry conditions that turned Fort McMurray into a tinderbox. The fire spread so fast that many residents barely made it out along the city's southbound, sole southbound highway. Combustive energy had drawn people to Fort McMurray, Valiant writes, and combustive energy drove them out again en masse. Fort McMurray was carved out of Canada's vast boreal forest, and its location, too, was key to the catastrophe. Many of the most destructive wildfires of recent years have jumped from forests or grasslands into communities situated in what's become known as the Wildland Urban Interface, or WUI, pronounced WUI. As Valiant puts it, the WUI is a beautiful place to live until it goes feral. According to Nick Mott and Justin Engel, the authors of This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat, published by Bloomsbury. Construction in the WUI is yet another reason wildfires are becoming more dangerous. The two put it on par with climate change and the history of fire suppression. We're putting up more homes than ever before. They ride in areas ripe for fire. In the U.S., California is the state that has the most housing in the WUI, about 5 million units. Texas comes in second with more than 3 million. And the figures keep climbing. Between 1990 and 2020, the total number of homes in the zone increased by nearly 50% in the U.S. to more than 44 million. Why do we keep building so vigorously where people are most at risk of losing their homes and lives to wildfire? Mott, a Montana-based journalist, and Angle, a professor at the University of Montana College of Business, ask. Part of the answer, they conclude, lies in the way the risk is spread around. When a serious wildfire threatens a community, the federal government often gets involved. In this way, it's not just those who live in the WUI who bear the cost of trying to protect it. It's also, Mott and Angle write, you, the taxpayer. A 2023 study they cite concludes that in the fire-prone American West, 
this implicit subsidy can amount to more than 20% of a home's value. Meanwhile, local government officials who are responsible for most zoning decisions have little incentive to curb construction in the WUI. On the contrary, local governments depend on new development to bring in more property tax revenue. If I'm a county commissioner, why would I care if that house burns down? Kimmy Barrett, a policy analyst at Headwaters Economics, a nonprofit research group, tells the authors, because I'm not going to pay for it. Mott and Angle have all sorts of suggestions for individuals who want to reduce the odds that their homes will go up in smoke. They urge those who live in high-risk areas to replace wood-shingled roofs with metal ones, remove lower limbs from trees, and keep wood piles at a distance. But they acknowledge these sorts of home-hardening projects do little to address the larger issue of development in the WUI, which they say has become a cycle that will be hard to reverse. Canada's 2016 wildfires, which included but were not limited to the Fort McMurray fire, released about 170 million tons of carbon dioxide into the air. The following year, according to the European Union's Earth Observation Program, carbon emissions from Canada's wildfires rose to about 400 million tons. In 2023, they came to an astonishing 1.7 billion tons. These figures point to another hard-to-reverse cycle. When trees burn, they release the carbon they took up while growing. This carbon contributes to warming, which increases the likelihood of wildfires, which release more carbon, and so on. In the far north, this cycle is exacerbated by the soil, which is often loaded with dead plant material. Igniting such carbon-rich soil further adds to emissions. More prescribed burning, more metal roofs, better zoning, these are all steps that can make a significant difference at a local level. But dealing with the wildfire crisis on a regional or a national scale would require addressing the CO2 feedback loop, which is impossible for any region or nation to do on its own. Hence, the predictions of a flame-filled future. As Pine observes in one of his bleaker moments, we have created a pyrocene. Now we have to live in it. Our next article is under the critics, Musical Events, and is titled Post-Apocalypse Now. The experimental Ukrainian opera Chernobyldorf at La Mama, and this article was written by Alex Ross. On the morning of February 24, 2022, air raid sirens wailed in the streets of Kiev, heralding a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. When the composer, Adrian Mokanu, heard the noise, he had a curious reaction. I thought the sirens sounded like giant wolves howling, he told me in an email. The oral illusion haunted him, and last year he created a piece called Time of the Wolves, which blends recordings of sirens and of wolves into a smoldering, eerily expectant electronic soundscape. The title alludes to Michael Haneke's film, Les Temps des Loups, in which a family wanders a contaminated landscape, and also to the old Norse epic, Voluspa, which contains the line, Wind time, wolf time, ere the world falls. Since 2022, Ukrainian artists have been thrust into a tragic spotlight, and composers are no exception. 
Their work has popped up on programs around the world, from elite European new music festivals to more rarely American orchestral concerts. A recent online stream from the Dallas Symphony under the direction of the Ukrainian conductor Kirill Karabits features Victoria Poleva's Cello Concerto, a mournful post-minimalist meditation, and Anna Corson's Terracone, which evokes devastation in the Donbass by directing performers to scream during the opening measures. In mid-January, the Prototype Festival and the venerable East Village venue La Mama hosted the Kiev-based organization Opera Aperta in a two-hour-long music theater piece called Chornobeldorf, which depicts the desperate aftermath of a future catastrophe. Dystopias are much in vogue in contemporary entertainment. In Ukraine, they count as unadorned realism. Vladimir Putin's attempted annihilation of Ukraine is premised on the genocidal idea that the nation has no legitimate identity of its own. The richness of Ukrainian musical history, which goes back many centuries, is alone sufficient to disprove that claim. At the same time, the question of identity is complex. Periods of Russian, Polish, and Austrian dominion over Ukrainian territories left a multi-hued cultural legacy. The Jewish population was once so vast that Yiddish became an official language of the Ukrainian People's Republic, the short-lived state that followed the fall of the Tsarist Empire. The Soviet era was one of brutal but unsuccessful repression. Boris Lytoshinsky, the most formidable of 20th century Ukrainian composers, felt obliged to follow Soviet socialist realist principles after the premiere of his Third Symphony in 1951, Communist Party authorities forced him to remove the finale's epigraph, Peace Will Defeat War, and to revise that movement in triumphalist style. Still, the implacably sorrowing three-note ostinato of the symphony's second movement hints at Ukrainian suffering, not only under Nazi occupation, but also under Soviet rule, and that implicit defiance is all the more evident when the Kiev Symphony plays the piece today. Younger Ukrainian composers who came of age in a thoroughly cosmopolitan contemporary music environment face a different conundrum. Corson won notice at the Darmstadt summer courses for new music and is now based in Germany. Mokanu, who has had residences across Europe, titles his works variously in Spanish, English, French, German, Italian, and Romanian. How should worldly European artists respond when their homeland is under attack? In a way, carrying on as before is itself an act of opposition, and that is largely what Mokanu and Corson have done. Yet, Time of the Wolves and Terracone both register the unavoidable pressure of the war. In Dallas, listeners who might otherwise have closed their ears to Corson's sonic upheavals could appreciate why she has no use for chords of comfort. Nationalism is a fount of evil in the modern world, yet it is also an essential pillar of support for the arts. In the end, only fellow Ukrainians will speak up for Ukrainian composers. The American musicologist Leah Batstone, who is of Ukrainian descent, has gathered considerable resources on the website of the Ukrainian Contemporary Music Festival, which she founded in New York in 2020. 
Following her lead, I've been exploring a bracing assortment of modern sounds. Carmela Sepokalenko's exuberantly chaotic Fifth Symphony, Ala Zakarevich's Anguished Requiem, with an orchestra made up of folk instruments, Maxim Kolomieta's furiously minimalist Four Rivers, which invokes rampaging dragons, Alexei Schmerich's quizzically neo-romantic piano trio, Crocodile in the Bathroom, whose title remains mysterious. All this music suggests a will to create that may outlast the will to destroy. Roman Gregorov and Ilya Razmiko, the co-composers of Chernobyldorf, embrace a mode of anarchic, unruly, provocative art-making that would no doubt be shut down if the nation were to fall under Putin's thumb. Born in 1989 and 1984, respectively, they not only write music together but collaborate as performers, librettists, and stage directors working in conjunction with members of Opera Aperta. The group first staged Chernobyldorf in Kiev in 2020 and later brought it to the Netherlands, Austria, Germany, England, and Lithuania. It's a sprawling multimedia spectacle, at times taxing, at times transporting, of a kind that was often seen at La Mama and like-minded downtown venues in the wandering years of the 20th century. Chernobyldorf, or Chernobyl Village, takes place several centuries after a series of environmental and biological disasters has wiped out modern civilization and left behind a smattering of technological and cultural artifacts. Scattered survivors are discovering the wreckage of the past and fashioning new rituals around it. Priestly costumes are adorned with circuit boards, cords, and other discarded gadgetry. An ecstatic tribal dance unfolds around a cutout of Lenin's head, ancient and modern cults fused. Film segments projected onto a screen behind the stage suggest baptismal ceremonies in a flooded industrial district. The music, too, arises from the jumbled detritus of a forgotten past, the twanglings of such Ukrainian folk instruments as the bandura and the cymbali, the one a kind of harp in the form of a giant lute, the other a relative of the dulcimer, collide with fragments of Baroque opera, blasts of experimental noise, pounding techno beats and mangled marches. Performance norms are often ignored. The bandura and the cymbali are tuned microtonally and pummeled mercilessly. Accordions are dangled from their keyboards like slinkies, moaning as they expand and retract. The artist, Evan Ball, invented several instruments for the occasion, including a cumbersome but imposing three-belled trombone. The dark absurdism and arcane spirituality of late-period Soviet art hang over the entire affair. Footage of abandoned infrastructure and an empty church brings to mind the cinema of Andrei Tarkovsky, particularly when such images are coupled with Bach's chorale prelude, which figures heavily in Tarkovsky's Solaris. At times, the illusions coalesce into indecipherable murk. According to supplemental notes, we were seeing manifestations of Electra, Dionysus, Ulysses, and Orfeo and Eurydice on stage, but I had difficulty telling one from the other. That members of the ensemble often appear nude seems, if not gratuitous, at least under-motivated. 
Still, there is no doubting the dire sincerity of the undertaking. The dance around Lenin's head comes across as a cathartic release of pent-up rage. The power of Chornobeldorf resides above all in the fearless intensity of the opera aperta ensemble. At La, La Mama, the soprano, Yulia Alexievia, the mezzo, Diana Ziabichenko, and the baritone, Ivgen Malafiev, covered a range of operatic styles, with the latter often ascending into a high falsetto. Marichka Shriptovola and Yulia Vitraniuk rendered polyphonic folk chants with a voluptuous richness of tone. Ihor Boychuk manipulated all manner of percussion in addition to flute, trumpet, and trombone. The cellist Zoltan Almashi, which is also a composer of note, let loose ominous drones one moment and executed elegant Bach the next. In a section titled The Mess de Chernobyldorf, the Agnus Dei from Bach's Mass in B minor, undergoes a series of mutations briefly exploding into punk rock. Grigorov and Razumiko, shedding clothes along with the others, handled the strummed instruments. This year's edition of the Ukrainian Contemporary Music Festival, which will take place at the Domena Center at the end of March, is scheduled to include a recent chamber orchestra piece by Grigorov titled Long Psalm 9M27K. If American customs officials permit, the composer will be playing an unusual instrument, a rocket from a Soviet-designed Uragan launcher. He received this object from a soldier whose piano had been destroyed by a similar projectile. As Grigorov told the online Ukrainian publication The Clackers, the idea is to extract a musical voice from military hardware to demonstrate its energy, its history, and its pain. A video of the work shows Grigorov applying a bow to the ribs of the rocket and producing sibilant tones. There is something suspect about such an aestheticizing of the technology of death, as Grigorov acknowledges. Nonetheless, he feels compelled to confront a Western public that is focusing on other crises or simply tuning out altogether. The days are long past when every other classical concert opened with the Ukrainian national anthem. Grigorov told the Clackers, I survive only through art, which only revolves around war. I can't talk about anything else now and express myself through other means. This is our reality. And now an article written by Paul Rudnick under Shouts and Murmurs, titled Every Ten Best List. Number one, something so obscure and pretentious that you're the only person who's ever seen, read, or listened to it. Use the phrases soul-shattering, proudly non-commercial, blazingly idiosyncratic, and seemingly empty yet rife with meaning. Number two, something super successful that you can ratify in a quasi-absurdist, neo-ironic way with language like populous, ubiquitous, surprisingly heartfelt, and Taylor Swift meets Beyonce meets Justin and Brittany Beanie Babies. Number three, a choice that proves you went to Harvard, have a podcast, and accept money from your parents in order to underwrite your nonlinear explorations of identity, and also grab a week in Croatia and get non-invasive microcurrent facials. Number four, any author, recording artist, or director whom you personally discovered by owning an iPad. 
Number five, a piece by someone of a different ethnicity or sexuality, which will make people think that you might not be a heterosexual, side-gendered Caucasian, which is legit because you once used eyeliner slash kissed a photo of Billie Eilish slash supported an artist from the Pacific Islands, even if you're not sure what counts as a Pacific Island. Number six, a work by an acknowledged older artist which will allow you to speak the word canonical very loudly while you while on your phone in the coffee shop that you patronize because it's not a Starbucks and gets herbs from a community garden to make smoothies that might also involve kitty litter, used kitty litter. Number seven, a project created by a women's collective, even if all the women have rich boyfriends and de- deny using Ozempic, but simply got so busy I forgot to eat. Number eight, a superhero movie, graphic novel, or neighborhood so despised that including it will make other people question their own judgments and choices of tote bags made from things they'd ordinarily wipe off the bottom of their shoes. Number nine, an offering rejected by every film festival, publisher, and YouTube viewer which you made as your senior thesis and is still ahead of its time according to the five-star rating you posted on Yelp under the name Not Brian. And finally, number 10, a creation that you truly like but that might inspire comments like tired, too easy, fascist, expected, patriarchal, and typical which is why you've added, I'm kidding, or am I, right before you pitch your new idea to Netflix as Barbie meets past lives meets Baby Yoda on steroids. Next, new roommates department, ghosts in the building. New York City's history is full of doppelgangers, lookalikes, and repetitions. Is there any experience as universal as moving here from a small town working a crappy job and spending half your keep to rent a shoebox apartment that you share with a roommate? Take, for instance, the story of a waiter named Joseph Moore. He moved to the city from Belvedere, New Jersey. He wasn't on street easy. This was 1857. The best he could afford was a 270-square-foot apartment he shared with four others. Moore is the subject of the Tenement Museum's latest exhibition, A Union of Hope. On a recent Sunday, two historians who consulted on the project, Tyler Ann Binder and Leslie Harris, met with Annie Pollan, the museum's president, to take a tour. The three joined up on Orchard Street, outside one of the walk-ups that housed the museum. Since its founding in 1988, the museum has focused on its building's former residents. Moore is the first subject who lived elsewhere. Holland, who has a cascade of graying hair, explained why he was chosen for the honor. Reason 1. In 2008, an exhibition about Irish inhabitants featured a different Joseph Moore, another waiter. Attendees were given a page from an old city directory. It listed two Joseph Moores. The visitors are like, well, wait, who's this other Joseph Moore, Pollen said. Why does it say C-O-L apostrophe D? He lives on Lawrence Street. Where is Lawrence Street? And so we looked into this. C-O-L apostrophe D meant colored. Lawrence Street is now West Broadway. Reason two. In the 80s, a woman named Gina Manuel sent a letter to the museum's founders asking them not to forget her black ancestors. 
Their spirits walk those halls and their bones lay in the earth there, she wrote. She added, forgive typos on coffee break. Recently, the museum looked into Manuel's ancestry. We have her great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother living at Lawrence Street, Pollen said. That was like, whoa, because that's the same address as Joseph and his wife, Rachel. Manuel's great-grandmother, Parthenia, overlapped with the Moors. You're making that up, Ann Binder, who was wiry with an impish face, said. We did scream when we found that out, Pollen said. Harris, who has a short afro of loose curls, says, My woo-woo part is, you've ignored us for too long. Now it's time. The museum cobbled together details of Moore's life. Ann Binder provided information about conditions in the tenement. Harris advised on black life in the city. Moore, it turned out, had come to Manhattan at the age of 20 after another free black man in Belvedere was apprehended by a slave catcher. Moore likely made $18 a month as a waiter and spent seven on rent. Waiters were virtually the worst-paid men in New York, Ann Binder said. Chimney sweep, that would be even worse. The procession continued to the top-floor recreation of Moore's cramped two-room quarters. Joseph, Rachel, and her stepdaughter, Rachel, Rachel had previously been married to the girl's father, who escaped slavery and later died, lived with an Irish washerwoman named Rose and her son, Louis Monday, who was listed on census forms as mulatto. The Moors all slept in the same bedroom. In the exhibition, a framed photo of Abraham Lincoln sat on the mantel. The kitchen could barely accommodate a metal washtub, a coal stove, and a dining table spread with oysters and bread. I have to share that the stovepipe is missing, Pollen said. There will be someone on the tour that would ask about that. Some people love stoves. Ann Binder was poking through the larder. How did you choose a turkey carcass, he asked. Do you really want to know, Pollen said. In the Moore's time, most parts of the city were hostile to black renters. Lawrence Street was an exception. The majority of white New Yorkers were really mad that the country was fighting a war to free slaves, Ann Binder said. Harris explained, There was a big discussion within the black community about whether or not people should stay, not only in New York, but if they should stay in the U.S. In 1870, Lawrence Street was widened and the Moors and their neighbors were displaced. The site of their tenement building eventually became the Soho Grand Hotel. Afterward, the trail on Moore went cold for a decade. He resurfaced in, New in Jersey City, where he was working as a coachman and had remarried. Rachel seems to have died. The museum has yet to find a death certificate. The group headed to a basement saloon. I, for the record, don't believe in ghosts, Pollen said, but the voices of people whose stories haven't been told did exist. And I think when you start to listen for them, and you start to look for them, and you start to become attuned to, the, to it, then you start to hear it. And that article was written by Ishmael Ibrahim. And our final article today, L.A. Postcard, Late Bloomer. The other Friday in a Hawaiian-themed apartment complex in the San Fernando Valley, burbling mini waterfall, tiki hut-style patrol booth, June Squibb was puttering around her cozy two-bedroom. The actress, who is 94, has lived in the complex since the early 2000s. They brought me out to Los Angeles from New York for the premiere of About Schmidt, she said, referring to the 2002 Alexander Payne film in which she played Jack Nicholson's wife. 
And then my agent got me ER, and I just kept getting work. Squib's robust orange tabby, Billy Bob, wandered by and rubbed against her shin. Her other feline, Mr. Rose, was dozing in the back of the apartment. We have 23 spots for the cats around the house, Kelly Sweeney, Squib's longtime assistant, said. Little beds and stuff. In sporty black sneakers with her hair in a bob, Squib radiated cheerful capability. She grew up in a small town in Illinois, the daughter of an insurance salesman and a piano teacher. She knew early on that she wanted to be in show business. Since I came out of the womb, she said. At 19, she joined the Cleveland Playhouse to perform in musicals. A lot of people came out of there, like Dom, she said, gesturing at an Al Hirschfield caricature of the late Dom DeLuise, her good friend, which was framed on the wall. She ended up in New York, where she appeared on Broadway and off. I was a comedian, she said. Then in the 1960s, she met the director and acting teacher, Charles Katasakis, who became her second husband and the father of her son, Harry. He convinced me that I should, I could be a really fine actress, she said. Though she was already in her late 30s, Squib began taking classes with him. It wasn't easy. All the kids were younger than me, and they knew me as Charlie's wife, she said. I would scream and cry, but he'd say, you're doing it, and boy, he got me to do it. She finally began working in film when she was around 60, a run that included has included an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress in 2014 at the age of 84 for her role as a sultry, salty matriarch in another pain movie, Nebraska. Kakasakis passed away in 1999. It was lunchtime, so Squib and Sweeney ventured out to a local Japanese restaurant to meet with Zoe Worth, a ponytailed producer in her 30s. Squib had befriended Worth while making Thelma, an action comedy that Worth produced, in which Squib plays the titular character, a grandmother who gets taken in by a phone scam to the tune of $10,000 and decides to go on a quest to recover the money with the help of a widower played by Richard Roundtree. The movie was the debut feature from the director, Josh Margolin, who based the character on his own grandmother, also named Thelma, and at 103, still with us. Margolin had wanted Squib for the role, but had been unsure how to get the script to her until a friend of his sister's, the actress, Beanie Feldstein, intervened. Beanie and I had done The Humans together, Squib said, referring to the 2021 drama. She took a bite of pork gyoza. We became close friends. We maintained a text tree, or whatever you call it. Sweeney broke in, and then we went to her wedding. Feldstein married her girlfriend, Bonnie Chance Roberts, in 2023. And everybody Beanie's age knew about it. They said, you're going to be Thelma. I haven't met the real Thelma, but we both like cop shows, so I told Josh to tell her which cop shows are my favorite, and she told him to tell me her, Squibb said. FBI on Tuesdays on CBS is the best. I'd love to be on it more than anything. What's the holdup, Worth asked. When we get home, let's start IMDBing. Let's send out a couple of notes. June likes these shows because she likes justice, Sweeney said. She's like Thelma. I related to the character immediately, Squibb said. Her strength and her decision. I'm going to get the money back. And she does it. Sweeney pulled out her phone and zoomed in on a black and white picture of Squibb as a child wearing boots and a dress. I was awful, Squibb said, laughing. I would stand in my yard and I'd say, anybody who comes in here, I'm going to beat them up. 
She sighed. When you get to be my age, you lose a lot of friends, she said. Roundtree had died in October at 81. That hurt a lot, she said. He showed nothing when we were working. He was strong, but they told us it was a very fast-acting cancer. Roundtree's five children were going to come to Sundance, where Thelma was premiering. Squib needed something to wear for the big event. Grabbing her cane, she got up to head to the clothing shop next door. Anything bright red would be good, she said. And that article was written by Naomi Fry. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Dale with The New Yorker. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.